so you had uh, a big pastor thing happen yesterday, huh? Uh, <laughs> yes. Is the a little bit of your tone felt a little bit like you were talking to Andrea, like you had a big day. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean. I didn't mean for that to be that way. I know. Um, I just. It was funny too. You had a long. You had a pretty busy day. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I did. Comforter and counselor, administrator and teacher, spirit-led truth-seeker, minister and janitor, prophet, preacher, sermon leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell is a Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Well, Joe, tell me about your week today. <laughs> My week. Um... I, before, I had a, a big day yesterday that I'll outline, uh, but I'm trying to think if there were other kind of huge things. We recorded on Saturday uh, and talked about coronavirus stuff, so I feel like that was a bunch of my week. Um, though I did, um, somebody came and donated, they, they have one of those big, it was like the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, group nearest to us and they have a big eraser board check that they take out when they donate money to organizations for That's awesome. yeah and it's I, I never even thought of this but they just like erase the name and they just use the big check again um and so they donate money to our food pantry and so i had done uh the photo op with them because our treasurer even though like she's the person that the um they had contacted because they know her because she's a community member um Mm -hmm. and she's the person who donated the building for the food pantry but uh she was like no 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 you pastor you you be in the picture uh and so i'm there with everybody was wearing face masks which i'm proud of um uh, and i'm there with my support healthcare workers mask that i got from uh crooked media the guys who do pod save america and so Mm -hmm. like if anybody, not that anybody here even knows what that is, but if anybody did, I'm just like waving my liberal flag with my face mask. Um, but so we did that photo op and I got to talk to the journalist for like the little local paper. Um, and uh, I was like, you know, if y'all have a religion section or a religion column and you need writers, just let me know. I'm happy to fill in. Uh, and she got back to me yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be like, do you want to write on the, the second week of the month? And I was like, yes, I do. So <laughs> I now have a recurring gig with the local newspaper. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, it was just fun. And then um, I got in touch with the uh, community uh, organization that's working with migrant workers in this part of the state uh, through the growing season. And uh, I had just, it, I had been, it taken so much of my energy to get like, like church back under my feet during the coronavirus that I hadn't been making these community connections as well as I might have otherwise. 
So I uh, got back in touch with them and they mostly need masks and like sanitizing stuff uh, for, for the people that they work with. They're pretty good on other supplies. So I'm going to see if we can organize a mask making drive because I know that a bunch of my people have um, sewing machines. Cool. And uh, they officially approved that I'm going to be taking on the second church, and so I have awesome. to organize. Yeah, so I have to organize a charge conference uh, with my church and their church church councils. Now, um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, I asked them if they can do it digitally, and the I guess the SPRC person for the other church um, was like, "Well, I'm in Georgia right now, but when I get back, I'll let you know." <laughs> like. So, uh, so it, it's been kind of a big pastoral week anyway. It's just been a bunch going on. Um, and I feel like I've done a lot of, not a lot, but several kind of like in person, not in person necessarily, but um, like with people in my circle who aren't in my church, I've been kind of pastoral to several different people. And so I like have mentally chalked some of those conversations up as um, pastoral care time for myself. Right. Um, a former colleague of ours, I don't know if you ever met this person at seminary, uh, a colleague of ours who was at a seminary with us, who, um, you know, and I have the country that she's from written down somewhere and I can't remember. And so I always feel terrible being like, she's from somewhere. She's from somewhere in West Africa. And I just can't think of it because the other, I have another friend who's from Mali. And so I always want to think of this person's from Mali, which is not. Anyway, uh, so she is finishing her chaplaincy stuff, her chaplaincy, CPE residency. And she had sent some of her, um, her paper's over for me to proofread because English is her second language and all that kind of stuff. And you just want to make sure with this kind of paperwork stuff, it looks good. And so I have been kind of going through a lot of her, her work and trying to like guide her into what I think her professor really wants her to be writing about instead of what she could put in and just like, cause as we talked about in the, um, the seminary minisode, which I think will drop, uh, before this one does. There, there are certain words and phrases that, yeah, you know, you just have to say in order that to, for people to know that you know the, um, the, the way of talking about things. And so did some editing with that, uh, but also just ended up talking to her. She had gotten, it, during her chaplaincy residency, got coronavirus because she was on the respiratory ward uh, floor and oh, recovered. Wow. Yeah. And then had it bad. I mean, was out for a month and just took a long time to recover. And so a lot of her chaplaincy stuff is her kind of dealing with that. And now she is back working with coronavirus patients and kind of, because a lot of people think if you're hospitalized with COVID, it's an automatic death sentence and it's not mm -hmm. necessarily uh, and so she would be there to kind of encourage people to not give up, which is good. Uh, mm. So I kind of talked with her through all of that. Um, and she had called me in the middle of the day yesterday and I didn't respond to her. And then I texted her last night and was like, I'm sorry, I missed your call. And she goes, no, no, no. I was just saying thank you. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's nice. Um, and she, her, she gave a skirt from her village to her daughter for me, like in the, in the pattern that is like ceremonial. 
uh, from where she's from. So mm. I will have to look that back up. So I am less uh, racist in not knowing it. But yeah, mm. so I'm excited to have that. Uh, so that's like, I'd already kind of had a full pastoral week <laughs> before yesterday. And uh, I didn't sleep at all on Tuesday night um, because listeners were recording on Thursday instead of Wednesday. I didn't sleep at all on Tuesday night um, for no real reason necessarily. I just like, it got to be midnight and I wasn't really sleepy. So I was like listening to podcasts and playing games on my phone like a boomer. And then um, it got to be like two or three in the morning and I started like a Twitter, Twitter scroll, which is always a mistake, but is what I did. Um, and just kind of like seeing the news from this week and, uh, and being really overwhelmed with how, you know, we opened the country back up and, and racism didn't miss a beat. And, um, and so I ended up writing a blog post around like four or five 30 in the morning. <laughs> and cause I just, I couldn't sleep. Uh, and it was, I feel good about what I wrote. My mother, I thought that I was uh, being overly dramatic, which means that I was probably right on point. <laughs> so, <laughs> just like really lamenting um, the loss of black lives in this country and lamenting that on top of all of the other injustices that like coronavirus is kind of forced into the background, but like white supremacy didn't go away and is actually more apparent in the coronavirus death toll and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, worried about that. And finally, around like 6.30 in the morning, I like laid down in my bed and felt like I got, um, you know, a decent nap started. And then the church phone rings. And I leave the church phone on all the time, but I leave it in another room so that like if somebody really needs me, they have to call twice. <laughs> and so I, there, I've also had people um, mistakenly text the church phone because it's just another cell phone number. There's nothing special about it. Uh, as I've gotten like random, like you up texts, uh, to which I respond, um, yeah, I think you have the wrong number. This is the pa pastor at the Methodist church and, uh, you know, have a good time. Just make sure you're safe and call me if you, if you get in an unsafe situation and I never get responses to those texts, but I enjoy sending them. Um, and so the church phone rings around like six thirty in the morning. I hear it ring twice and I'm like, well, they'll leave a voicemail. And so I listen for the voicemail notification and it doesn't happen. I was like, okay, wrong number. They got to the voicemail. They realized it was a missed call and I try to fall asleep and around like seven, the church phone rings again. So I get up, I answer it. And it turns out that it's this lady who has been doing community service work with us. Um, she had lost her license for reckless driving and she is doing those hours to make up for that so she can get her license back and get her car back and get her job back and get into housing and all that kind of stuff. And it, while she was without a license, she was staying with um, a friend of a former partner of hers uh, who then it turned into a romantic relationship and uh, she refers to him as her boyfriend. So she was staying with her boyfriend. And as she had been doing community service over the past couple of months, I had noticed like 
extra like bruises on her arms and scrapes and things. But I was, she, I mean, up here, there's a lot of people who do a lot of kind of physical labor around their houses. So it very much could have just been, she was carrying two by fours the wrong way or something, you know. Uh, sure. But when she started to get bruises on her face, I started to be like, how are, how are things going? Uh, and she like very quickly started explaining what was going on. And um, when she finished her last community service with us, uh, she was like, I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. I'm going to go stay with my son, which is where my car's at. I'm in my car back. I'm going to get my life together. Never coming back. I was like, great, good, go do that. Um, her abusive boyfriend was the one who was still picking her up, but like any port in a storm, she was planning on getting out of town. So then I get this call from her at seven in the morning. Uh, and she tells me the whole story of what had happened to her the night before. She had ended up having to run away from the house because he had threatened her life. Mm -hmm. And so she ran to a neighbor's house, called the cops, uh, and she literally had nowhere else to stay because the only person that she knows in this area is her hopefully now ex-boyfriend. But because she had worked with me, she looked up the church phone number on uh, somebody else's smartphone because he had taken her phone uh, and called me. And so I picked her up at Walmart and um, we planned, talked about what we would do for the day. Uh, I took her back to my house and let her shower and let her nap in my guest room. And we just kind of went from there and it became increasingly clear over the course of the day that it was not safe for her to stay in this area. And so her daughter drove from a different part of the state and I drove her partway to meet with her daughter. I actually ended up leaving her at um, one of my best friends from growing up's parents' house. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a good like way station. And I had called my friend to be like, is your mom home? Can I just, can I just leave a stranger in the middle of a pandemic at your mom's house? And she was like, oh yeah, let me go. I'll just check. And, and it was totally fine. And, um, this is, this is my friend, Joy. Joy, if you're listening to the pod, um, Joy's mom, I have always referred to as Mrs. Joy's mom. Her name's Debbie. Uh, and I completely forgot that because I've known her since I was in seventh grade. So it was like, that was just how I refer to this human. Uh, and she, she works as a as administrative assistant at a church, but has been in church all of her life and is just, just a saint. So I left this one with her, her daughter came and picked her up. Um, and then, you know, this is all happening in the middle of a, the remnants of a tropical storm coming across North Carolina. <laughs> and so I ended up staying the night at my parents' house because it wasn't safe for me to go back up the mountain last night. So I had to, we made plans to tentatively reopen for midweek worship yesterday because that is, uh, that's usually a small group that meets. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually fewer than five people. And so we can do a physically distant, safe five person gathering. And that would hit some of the people who don't have internet would be able to come to that. And so people who have really been missing church for the past month could safely gather at a distance with other mm. people. And so that was our plan, but I, that was not what happened. And so that was my, that was my big pastor day yesterday <laughs> was, and I just, we, we've talked about this before, like when you've talked about giving parishioners rides and things and, mm -hmm. um, 
it's one of those moments where you feel like you're the professional Christian in town <laughs> where like, if somebody's going to do this, like it may as well, it may as well be us. And, you know, maybe I could have not driven this person that far, but like, I was the only person she knew, right? Like I was the mm -hmm. only number and he, he took her cell phone, he took her laptop um, he had just been very manipulative. And so like, this was, this was the only port in the storm. Um, and so I, like, I, I am happy that I was that resource. I'm happy that I was able to like utilize my network. Um, our friend Grace from seminary had given me, um, the, the burner iPhone that she had when she lived in South Africa, when my iPhone broke in seminary. And so I had just held on to that until I was able to get a new phone. And so we were able to start that phone back up and I was able to give it to this lady so that she would have something to at least be able to like communicate via the internet until she's able to get a phone back. So uh, Grace was really pleased and I'm really like glad that I just, I had that available because Grace just had an extra iPhone to like give away, which yeah. is, there was just a whole, it felt like a lot of the body of Christ coming together to keep somebody safe. Right, Which was right. really what I needed in the face of the news of, of this past week, where it seems like there's so much of Christianity that I associate with whiteness because I grew up in a very white Christian church. And so whenever I see whiteness being the, the terrible toxic thing that how it functions in our country, I associate that with like Christians. Like that's my default more or less. And so whenever I see white people fucking up, I'm like, well, here's the church not doing what it should have been doing all the way around. And so it was, it was nice to actually, we were all white people doing this. It was nice to be like white women who were actually saving a life instead of white women who are fucking shit up. Um, and it, like, not, not that this lets any of us off the hook. It was just, it was just good to be able to do good. So that has been my week. How was your week? <laughs> well, first of all, I think that that's a fantastic and, and, and it's, you know, your story is really provokes in me, you know, thinking about, um, what our role as pastors is in small towns often, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when our towns don't have a ton of resources and a ton of, you know, things that, like that, that maybe uh, larger towns or cities or, or other areas might, might offer. Um, we end up being called on to do things that um, we only are tangentially trained to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is okay. That that's actually not that I'm not I'm not I don't think I'm mad about that. I think that it becomes uh, that that's the unique need uh, for rural ministry or small town ministry. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually in a uh, class on. Uh, rural revitalization in the church that is being offered through Howard online uh, that I found that was like 75 bucks. So I'm, I'm pumped about it. Cool. And that was one of the things that they, that they have mentioned is that like 
rural ministry, you know, in very urban settings too, where that safety net might not really be as available. Churches are also these kind of, kind of go-betweens, but in rural places where everything is so spread out and resources are so hard to get, like we do have that function. Mm-hmm. I should also say that like the police would have taken her to a women's shelter and like she would have made use of those resources, except we're in a pandemic and the shelters aren't taking new people. So right, right. This was when that infrastructure is not able to accommodate. Like there, because and there's a little bit of risk taking. Like she's originally from Gaston County, which is down near Charlotte, which has a much higher number of cases than up here. And so there's every chance in the world that like she has been infected and hasn't been t- tested and is just asymptomatic. Uh, so, like, in the middle of a pandemic, it, it's not my best plan to go to my childhood best friend's mom and give her a stranger, but that's how we did as Christians today. <laughs> so. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and I th- but I think that that's, uh, you know, your experience is, is unique among lots of people, but it's not terribly unique among with me or, or our colleagues that are in similar kind of ministry situations. Yeah. You know, we are, I, I, you made a comment about feeling a little bit like the professional Christian that day, but, but I don't think your story, you know, reads that way. Like lots of other Christian people were involved. That's true. You, you, you just happened to be uh, the point person (laughs) because you had the relationship with, with the, with this woman. Um, and so, and so, your other insight of this feels like the body of Christ is moving is, is, I think, a really good insight. Because I think it did, you know, lots of people had to be faithful at different times in your history, mm-hmm. in order for you to be able to, you know, help this this woman in a real concrete way. And. Um, and I love that. I, I, I don't mean to kind of reflect on it, but I, you know, on a story that's not mine, but I, but I will. Um, I love that because like it really confirms kind of for me the way I understand um, one aspect of God's like providential action in the world, right? Like mm. I, I don't think that um, this is all, this was always my, my big critique of, Christian evangelical films like one of my one of my beliefs is that Christian evangelical films take place in an alternate universe where there is a magician Mm -hmm. that lives in space who performs magic and we call him God Um, but but in but on the real you know reality in an actual real world land the way in which God acts one of the ways in which God acts is through um, the body of Christ being faithful, mm. you know, and 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 so, um, wow, like wow, this this woman was helped in, in in some way. How is that possible? Well, it's really not that hard. Um, it's possible because the body of Christ, at one point, however imperfectly, they no, we never have to do anything perfectly. The body of Christ drew along, alongside uh, a, a young girl named Joe. <laughs> you know, at, at one point, at one point in history, and also drew alongside a young girl named Grace, and also drew alongside, you know, mm-hmm. you know all of these things. And, and from all of their faithful actions, 
uh, and so on and so on and so on led to this. Yeah. And, and, and it's miraculous, but it's not magic. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's miraculous precisely because, wow, this is really what happens when um, the people of God are faithful, when they're faithful to the Sermon on the Mount, when they're faithful to uh, the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit, then these, these incredible things happen. Um, not because we wielded Moses's staff and, and the Red Sea parted, but because, yeah, we just, we just do what we're supposed to do. And, yeah. and good things take place. And I, one thing that this woman said a lot was that she just really believed that God had put me in her path for a reason. And that's that kind of evangelical coded language that we want to avoid. But like, there is, there's also no good reason for me not to really have been able to have slept in the, the night before. And I'm not saying that my lack of sleep made me more um, attentive, but that like I was um, awake enough to, because I've been sleeping until like 1 p.m. There have been no, you know, constraints on my time for when I'm sleeping and I've been sleeping hard. So just the fact that I was awake in the time to take the call so that she wasn't um, left kind of abandoned or in a place where her boyfriend could have found her. So there is like, there is something to be said for, um, you know, the spirit moving within you in unexpected ways. I don't know that I would like stand up and testify that that was, that God was keeping me awake and bothering me, but I'm also like just suspicious enough to be like, hmm, I wonder. I wonder, but you're, the way that you talk about it is a lot more in lines with, um, with what I choose to believe and what I would write on, say, boom paperwork. <laughs> right, right. No, I hear that. But no, I think that's a great story. And I think that's um, uh, really indicative of a ton of really good things. You know, our, yeah. our, our unique and strange role as, as small town or rural pastors. Um, uh, there's a, a uh, <laughs> this is going to sound like a side thing, but it, it's connected. Uh, have you ever read any Patrick Rothfuss? No, I haven't. Nick has been on me to do it, and I just have you, not found it in my library. Nick, when you listen to this, I'm sorry. You don't have to read Patrick Rothfuss. He's kind of an idiot, like personally. <laughs> but but he's a king nerd, and, and he, he wrote, he's, he's almost done theoretically with a trilogy of books that that are, are really quite well written uh called um the king killer chronicles mm -hmm. and um and and uh, they're really good like like they they are i'm not taking that from him but i i think that he's uh li like he would not be our favorite person in a systematic theology class like, like he'd be one of those people that we'd be like you are not really thinking this through you know <laughs> you you mm -hmm. you were the smartest kid in your religion program at a small liberal arts college, and you still haven't done any reading. You need to start reading. <laughs> like, like like that's that's what I would say. But anyway, um, he uh, when he is interviewed about writing fantasy, he he he'll, he's pretty interesting to listen to. But but he was asked once in an interview about wizards, like like or magic users in his in his work like what's his philosophy on like really creating 
you know, these kinds of characters that like folks can really sink their teeth into, like, you know, cause it's not just about this guy knows magic. Like, like how, how do you write it? And, and he, uh, his rule is basically, you know, I, I, there are sort of two or three wizard archetypes that I use when I think about it, but, but they're ultimately the same archetype. And he's like, I think about, uh, Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And I think about Moses, hmm. you know, and, and he's like, why? Why do I think about these things? It's really very simple. All what a wizard is, is somebody that has knowledge that not everybody else has. And, okay. and, uh, and, and the way uh, that character functions in a story is with an air of mystery and an air of, of set apartness and an air of, you know, um, uh, specialness, not specialness in a, you should be jealous of me or you should whatever, but specialness in an expertise way, you know, like, like if we hit up against a problem, like in Lord of the Rings, when you hit up against a problem, you all look at Gandalf and, and Gandalf kind of looks at the situation and, and, and comes to a conclusion based on his kind of hidden knowledge. It's not really secret knowledge. It's just hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses functions the same way in the stories of Moses. You know, we where does Moses have magic? Eh, sort of, but that's irrelevant. Moses has uh, hidden knowledge, has privileged knowledge, where he's able to look at a situation and go, "Yeah, okay, this is what we do." Um, I say all of that because, like, I think that's something like how we function how pastors in small towns and rural settings end up functioning. And I said this before, like we're often the most kind of educated people in town Um, just sort of because particularly in the Methodist church, sort of because we're required to get master's degrees in order to be ordained. Right. You know, we're, we're often um, looked to, to answer kind of big uh, abstract questions uh, when people have them, people don't always have them, but, but when, but it's always so exciting, right? Like, like pastor, I have a question about God. Oh yes. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. It's like in scrubs, the show scrubs when, uh, when they need a dermatologist and the dermatologist is like, I am ready. Let's take a look at this guy's skin. (laughs) Like, because that's all he knows. Yeah. uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I reflect on it that way, kind of in a funny sense, because not that I fancy myself a wizard, uh, that's not really what I mean, but, but I feel that way. Yeah. I, I feel, uh, and, and maybe you do as well. Like I feel that sometimes from the folks in the community or, or from our own, our own people, like we are looked at uh, or treated like a wizard, <laughs> That doesn't mean that we're listened to all the time. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> or, anything, <laughs> or, or anything like that. But I think it does mean that, like, um, we're, we're looked at in, in this sort of hidden knowledge way. Like, I have a person in the community that I actually have to call to let him know that we're going to be leaving the community. But there's a person in the community who will call me when he has a tax question. Huh. Like, like, he'll call me on any question he has. Like, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to get secure custody of his son. Um, and, and he'll call to ask me about custody laws. 
and I'll be like, oh, I don't know anything about it. But but I I I guess one place you can look or ask to maybe learn about it would be this, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think that uh, that instinct for for some people is kind of indicative of of that kind of weird space that I think we inhabit in this kind of ministry. Yeah, I mean, and I also uh, emailed a couple other pastors because another part of this woman's story is that her husband was uh, dying of cancer and his parents convinced him to divorce her so that they could inherit their house, the, this woman in, in her husband's house. And so that's part of where the reckless driving came in. Uh, and so she wants to know if there's any like legal recourse she has for being kicked out of her own house. And so I ended up uh, emailing other local pastors to be like, do we know any pro bono lawyers who would at least look at the case? So yeah, I mean, that is, we we do seem to be in this position to to have things that feel like hidden knowledge to others, but are really just like, good connectionalism and and good resourcing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i agree i agree i don't really have anything to say about my day uh my more my week so we'll move on <laughs> okay i support that um so one thing that we had talked about earlier um, is uh, before all this happened, I it, when I was scrolling on the Twitter before the Twitter scroll of death, uh, was I had liked a tweet that said, your problem is with fundamentalism, not historic Christianity, is the progressive version of you were never saved in the first place. Different battle lines, same defensive, no true Scotsman. And I, I liked that because... Um, it, it seems true to me that uh, what I have found is somebody who has moved very far away from anything remotely like evangelicalism and Christian fundamentalism is that like people like to be like, oh, well, you just haven't haven't seen the real church come to uh, come to my Episcopal church and we will tell you what real Christianity is when like mm-hmm. we really just mean uh more smells and bells and more uh, traditional Western theology as opposed to like evangelical fundamentalism. And you had not read that in that same light. And we got into a kind of discussion with it. So uh, kind of tell us, tell us how you interacted with that and what, what that kind of brings to light for you. Right. Um, so listeners, one, one of the, th- there's, there's a couple of things that that kind of brings out in me that, that tweet. On one hand, I, I don't know if the analogy he is making between like um, the between uh, uh, your problem is with fundamentalism and uh, you were never saved in the first place. I, I'm really not sure I see that analogy. Like I don't I don't really see how those two sentences are kind of used in, in a similar way. Mm. Um, so that's sort of one thing. Because for me, like like my experience with an evangelical, well, you were never saved in the first place, you know, is it, really connected to a, uh, you know, folks are, evangelicals are mad that they're being questioned or challenged by an ex-evangelical or some one of their own or, or mm. whatever. Um, when, when really, let me, or let me try it again. When, but when I hear this kind of, or even when I use, you know, this kind of 
um, your problem is with fundamentalism. It's very rarely with a fellow Christian. Uh, it, true. It, it's more often, my experience with it is, is more often with uh, people I'm, who I'm having discussions with who might consider themselves non-religious or atheists or agnostics or, or whatever, who are kind of using um, Richard Dawkins style arguments, you know, take a look yeah. at how violent religion is. And, and whenever I hear a phrase like that, I go, what exactly do you mean by religion? You know, what exactly do you mean by violence? What do you even mean by fundamentalism? You know, um, I, I don't really know what any of that means. Um, I have some ideas on what people might think it means, but like, I, I don't think we're all using the same definitions anyway. And so like, I, I get a little, I get a little confused. The other thing I think about is religious fundamentalism is, is for a lot of, you know, psychologists of religion and sociologists of religion and philosophers of religion, religious fundamentalism is often understood as its own thing. That, that, uh, Christian fundamentalists and Muslim fundamentalists and Hindu fundamentalists, just to name a few, uh, have more in common with each other than they do their own faith tradition. Right. And, and so like from those kind of studied perspectives, it becomes um, murky to even, to, to even try and say that they're sort of a part of the family of religious traditions that they claim to be a part of. Uh, most because f- from these from these kind of scholars like like from from these like sociologists and and anthropologists and stuff like that folks who are studying this um, mostly because fundamentalism uh, has its roots in modernity um, mm-hmm. it has its roots in in a kind of uh, a colonialism like like it it many of the places that have religious fundamentalists have also had a history of colonialism, you know, like whether that's uh, have been the victims of colonialism or have been the per- perpetrators of colonialism. Um, there, there are, uh, there are not a lot of in- instances of say Zoroastrian fundamentalists, <laughs> um, uh, um, Native American fundamentalists, even though that might, that might even be a part of it. Uh, that they they might reach they might hit some criteria with their encounters with colonialism. Um, there's also and here's the kind of thing the, the other thing that that scholars have seen is religious fundamentalists are connected to power that 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 often you have a kind of fundamentalism as a reaction to losing power. Mm. Um, and, and and so like which is why uh, a ton of marginalized um, religious communities do not, uh, do not, who have, who have historically been marginalized, do not run rampant with fundamentalism. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they can't have it, but it's just, you know, it, it, there's, there's tendencies. And so I, the use of that does the, the, the way the, the Twitter author puts those two things together and kind of uses that language uh, confuses me because I think often for all of those reasons, it confuses me, but, but the, my kind of putting a pin in my, what I'm saying initially, often I think that the answer really is that people have a problem with fundamentalism. 
Like, like mm-hmm. I, I actually do think that's, that's not always the answer, but like, I do think that's the answer. I mean, I suppose um, that, that someone might have a problem with uh, the Catholic work, worker movement or Mother Teresa or um, uh, orphanages and free hospitals and, <laughs> you know, all of the, 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 the monastic um, uh, commitment in the medieval period of, of maintaining pagan and Muslim and, uh, um, you know, Celtic spirituality uh, uh, wisdom in, in the scriptoriums and stuff like that. I guess folks could have a problem with those things. Um, but like, I don't, I, you know, I don't think they, I don't, I, I think that the only reason somebody would, would be out of ignorance. Yeah. And, and I think that's true too. I think that um, the, the person, the Twitter author is imprecise in, in all of the ways that you've described. And I think that's a good way to talk about it. I also think that um, the, the sentiment behind it as as kind of ill phrased as the tweet is is also true that what you find um when somebody comes out of a a christian cult <laughs> a fundamentalist christian cult uh and is very angry at um at everything to do with everything that's caused them harm including christian theology and and a Protestant says to them, because they probably would be, if they were going to try to like, if anybody was going to try to reconvert a, a ex-fundamentalist, it would be the Protestants. Yeah. Um, even though there are, there are other sects of Christianity that could have more success, but they would say something along the lines of, oh, well, what you're, what you're really mad at is fundamentalism. You're not really mad at Christianity. And so for somebody who has, um, who has found their salvation in their freedom from fundamentalism and, it, and is working out their salvation on their own to say to them, Oh, you just need to believe in the historic Western church. And then you will, then you'll really be set free is, is to move the goalpost on that person. Um, and is to say that like no true Christian would ever be a fundamentalist. Um, and, and like, as you've just described, fundamentalism, uh, fundamentalists have more in common with each other than they do the religions that they come out of. Uh, but there are also Christian spaces that are not necessary fundamentalism, necessarily fundamentalism, but are more evangelicalism that like mm-hmm. could trend toward, but is not, that will get, that will get mislabeled. And then to say the faith that the, the true faith that you actually did have, like the, the actual gleamings of Christianity that you were exposed to, even though it was in this, um, this context or like the true Christian faith that you've been able to kind of walk around outside of fundamentalism to say, Oh no, what you really need is my systematized version of Christianity. And then you'll experience real salvation. 
is is what the the problem is there which is it's a very niche tweet that is is said in such a way to make it sound as if it should be um more broad and the use of fundamentalism there is um and, and the use of historic Christianity there does make it sound like it, it is intending to engage in these kind of new atheist arguments when that was not the original context of the tweet. Mm-hmm. Talking around all that. Um, but, but at the same time, like uh, appealing to quote unquote historic Christianity, like doesn't solve the problem for me. Like if somebody has, is angry at Christian fundamentalists, appealing to historic Christianity doesn't like broadly doesn't fix it for me because historic Christianity has all sorts of problems as we've talked about in other episodes, but like there's, and I don't know what to define as like true Christianity. Right. Cause I, I always want to keep myself open to the idea that, uh, that I am wrong and that I'm learning and that I'm, I'm progressing toward a more perfect version of my faith and that I am in my faith and my understanding of my faith growing ever to be more like Jesus, but I know I'm not like Jesus yet. And so like, even though, Methodism is the brand of Christianity brand. Listen to capitalism is the branch of Christianity <laughs> that I uh, follow. I also like Methodist movement has had some some major stumbles. Is in the middle of a major stumble, and like so, do I? I that's what makes it really hard to want to to ask people to come join what I'm doing because I have to be very humble about the fact that like. Maybe you don't want to join this particular dumpster fire. Maybe we need to find a, a better, a better version of the faith for you to come to. I just that that's where I get caught up once we once we move the dis, the discussion past the author's original intent. Is, I mean, how do you advocate for anybody to be a Christian? Because <laughs> they're they're we're just we're just hella problematic. But then we're also like this also just a very beautiful. There are so many examples of like beautiful Christians doing beautiful things. And so you want to like be like that. That is, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we want to do. But you have to always be encountering all of the ways that we fall short of or in, or, or are in direct opposition of, of the beautiful parts of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, there's a lot to that, isn't there? Um, I think that, oh man, I think that um, when I appeal to historical Christianity, I, I sort of firstly have in mind, um, uh, and part of this is my own dispensation, like dispensation, disposition is what I mean, my own dispensation, the, my own personal revelation that the Holy Spirit has given me, <laughs> my, my own disposition. Um, is as I usually appeal to the kind of Christian intellectual tradition and, and its tradition of thinking about morality and all of these things. That's sort of the first thing I appeal to because because really like and and that might be wrong and and perhaps perhaps it isn't as helpful as I want it to be. But like because because ultimately like 
one of the first um, issues with a kind of evangelicalism and a fundamentalism is its is its desire to occupy an ahistorical space and its desire to to kind of occupy this uh, uh, revisionist sort of fantasy history. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, uh, you know, and so like when I when I place everything in those you know in those terms, like I do that in a sense, an attempt to combat it and an attempt to kind of show the world i'm not i wouldn't necessarily do this to convince somebody to um become a christian i I have no interest in doing that actually sorry (laughs) um uh, i i really don't i guess i do i i do because i think this is true and i and i think that life life can be you know more abundant but like i also don't really if i encounter somebody from a uh, 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 who has left a fundamentalist Baptist church uh, or something like that. I, I'd be like, wow, man, we got to find you a psychologist before we find anybody else because yeah. Yeah. you were just abused for however many years. But like, I, I certainly wouldn't use that as a tactic. I wouldn't use the, oh, well, you just, you know, mostly because I wouldn't be bothered by it. I think right. that there's a lot of anxiety among like, some mainline Protestant or, or other folks, uh, and when when they encounter an ex-Christian, mm-hmm. uh, there is an anxiety, and the anxiety is, oh no, like like you know, it didn't work, <laughs> it didn't take, you know. Right. And for me, I'm like, yeah, man, you, you'd be shocked at the amount of Christianities I rejected, <laughs> right? <laughs> coming coming to coming to where I'm at now. Um, but I, for for me, like like my once again, my my grief. Well, before I talk about my grief with this tweet again, um, here's the other thing I think about. Like I think that the reason why I don't often appeal to historic Christianity as like a trying to point to a Christian community mm-hmm. um, and say, look, there's the historical church. Like the reason why I don't often do that is because that's like so easily knocked down like like and i don't really believe that either like like right. like i can't come up with a with a historical christian community that is perfect and i don't a i don't think that's the point um but but like b like if if we are attempting to if the only uh arguments we have for joining a group is we are morally unproblematic then uh then why is everybody what then why are we even trying to what what are we trying to do like like th- this is we're we're talking pure impossibility you know right like like there is no non morally problematic group like like well frankly if that's what we're trying to do then the only people the only groups that can succeed in retaining members are lying groups groups that lie right. and uh, do all the same tactics that evangelicals do. You know, I actually don't think there's such a thing as an ex-evangelical. Um, I don't. I actually don't. I, and, and I can say that uh, without a lot of pain because I've never really been an evangelical. And so mm-hmm. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry that my opinion might hurt you. But, but like... Uh, and I mean nothing by it, but I don't. I don't think there's such a thing as an ex-evangelical. I think that there are um, theistic evangelicals, and I think that there are atheistic evangelicals. And 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 I think that um, 
for those who consider themselves ex-evangelicals, I think that the only possible way that they can, um, that, that folks like that, and I, and I have a little bit of that in me, I, I, so, so I'm not totally divorced from it, but I think that the only way, ex, the only way evangelical, the only way folks who consider themselves ex-evangelicals to really become ex-evangelicals is, is for a total reorientation in a historic community. Mm. Um, hmm. is, is for them to hitch their wagon in as fully integrated as possible to a new community that really understands itself in, in defined terms. Because another word for evangelical is just an American. You know, another word, another word for evangelical, because it's all rooted in the same, in the same kind of topsoil. Like it's all rooted in that. Um, the, the sense of uh, a totally free individual that, that can pick and choose his or her own fantasy history that lives in the present, you know, that lives, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't pull from resources from the past, but instead pulls from the, the most immediate stuff. You know, nobody is quoting Crazy Love by Francis Chan, but everybody's <laughs> quoting the most recent book by Francis Chan. You know, I have not read the most recent book by Francis Chan, but I did see that I have Crazy Love on my shelf at my parents' house. Well, y'all got to burn that because <laughs> Francis Chan's bad. Um, but, but like, that's all I'm saying. Like, and so, like, for, for an ex-evangelical, you know, I, I go, because I assume that this, this person who tweeted this is, would, would consider himself an ex-evangelical, I, I, I find that uh, coming from the same kind of soil, you know, yeah, right. I, I think there's truth in that. I um I wanna pump the brakes a little bit by saying that um the there are similarities with um the practice of evangelicalism in America with other Christians who who there there might be some um the the influence is there from evangelicalism in the United States, but they are not. It, it, it is in a different way, and so I, I um I hear everything you're saying, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that, and I think that um I think that it is so deeply tied with the identity of um of white people in the United States who think that they get to decide everything on their own and only for themselves. But I, there's also roots in that in, um, in enlightenment thinking and, um, in like, you could go all the way back to like certain strands of like Greek philosophy that the, that enlightenment thinkers pull from in order to, to get to the, the place that they're at. And so I, I want to say that there's, there's some fuzziness there and that it's a porous boundary. Um, sure. And, and I also want to say that, like, I don't know, I, I don't know this Twitter person from anybody else. So I, I don't want to claim anything about their background. Um, can, can I share kind of one more, like, thought about the, the tweet to see what yeah. you think? Uh-huh. Uh, we've said something like this before, um, but, but I think it sort of bears repeating. Like, the majority of the world's Christians are... Um, not white. Right. And, and, and they've, and they've never been white. Like, 
Right. Uh, that that's a you know that's one of those alt right <laughs> fantasy a historical fantasy ideas, right? Mm-hmm. That that the whites are in decline uh, because Christianity is in decline. A Christianity is not in decline, and B the whites have never been the majority of the Christians in the world. Like that that's just not how it that's just not how it has ever historically worked. Yeah. Um, it's it's probably true that white folks who happen to be Christian have held the most political power. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's probably true. But um, there is no sense in which um, the decline of white power and the decline of Christianity amongst whites. Well, that might be connected. I actually, I'll dial back on that. <laughs> it yeah. is very possible that the decline of, of, or, or the or the the feeling of the decline of white power, and, and and the decline of Christianity among white people might be connected. That that might be connected. I mean, I think um, that's really deeply at the root of the problem in the United Methodist Church right now. Sure, no, I think that's true. But but like, so I say all of that not to kind of whisk away this Twitter person's um, complaint. Like, I'm not trying to sweep it under the rug. I'm I'm just I'm just trying to kind of remind us that like many of the gripes um and and embarrassing moments truly embarrassing moments in the history of Christianity are are not so it, it's not obviously true that they're coming from um the theological and religious and philosophical commitments of the Christian community of white people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not clear that that's true. Like, as we know, you know, we, people have a million reasons for doing everything. And, and to kind of say, like, like I've heard different kind of odd critiques um, among among well-meaning people and even among really serious philosophers that like the the kind of Christian insistence on um, the exclusivity of Jesus sort of leads to colonialism when 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 I when I just think that it's that it's the opposite <laughs> when I think they've got it opposite a, a I, I don't know how much, um, the corridors of power are ever influenced by Jesus Christ at all. Like, like I just don't mm-hmm. know how much um, kings and queens and politicians and merchants and, and the people that sort of wield public and political power are, are um, uh, think about what would Jesus do or, or think about their commitment to the church. I, I just don't think that's, that's, quite common you know i'm there are of course different stories of that happening throughout the christian throughout christian history and and usually those are times of of really great like um moral victories on behalf of the church there's there was an emperor a christian emperor um who who used his political power to uh, send an army to to quell an uprising of pagans in in the Roman Empire, and he killed them. Like like his army murdered all these pagans, and so when he was in line to receive communion uh, 
from you know the bishop, uh, Bishop Jerome. He came up to Bishop Jerome, and Bishop Jerome looked at him and said, "Next." You know, <laughs> and, like, and like pushed the emperor. I was just like, the emperor can can leave the line and will receive no communion, and and like the emperor repented, like 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 in that moment. Now, there, I, I'm not saying, um, you know, it was because because the church had all this power, but, or or that like he didn't do it for political reasons, but like. Those political reasons would have been really weak. He was the emperor. Yeah. He he could have he could simply have had Jerome thrown out. He could simply have just had a different uh, bishop that that showed up. He could have just said no, give it to me. But instead, yeah. he was like, "What must I do? What must I do to receive communion? What act of repentance must I do?" Now, like, yeah. I think I think you'd have to be, you know, a little silly to not see that as like a real victory on behalf of the church in a good way, like on behalf mm -hmm. of God's church, you know, like and and God's mission in the world. Um that but but those are those are anomalies. Those those aren't common. Yeah. I want to jump in with um and i know i mentioned it in a, a minisode ago uh by jack jenkins book american prophets it leads off with um a chapter talking about how like nuns and women religious in the united states were crucial in impacting in getting the affordable care act passed and mm -hmm. like it was a lot of this coalition of um people who saw the need for health care and were christian and pushed for it out of their christian ideals and then the next chapter chapter he talks about um obama's faith journey and, and obama's use of faith in in his campaign and in his terms in office which is fascinating uh, but also talks about uh, the importance of the black church in mm. the United States in terms of, of, you know, getting political clout together in order to, to get things, to get things passed that are, that are like triumphs of a Christian ideal. Is any of it, is any of it perfect? Is any of it completely unproblematic? No, but I think it's, it is interesting that when we are looking at, um, the groups that have, um, follow Christianity as I think you and I would identify as, as kind of true Christian things are not necessary, are not, are certainly not white evangelicals in the United States and are not even white Protestants completely right. in the United States. And, and so the whole, the discussion that the, that that tweet is pulling together is a very white discussion that is so separate from the it, the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ that it it becomes something that we look at and is like you know I I see what you're getting at but that discussion is so small compared to the work that Jesus Christ is doing in the world today. Right. Right. And I I completely agree. And and you know like once again like I'm not saying to this person or anyone who would really identify with what this person is saying, I'm not saying to them, ha ha, your argument is invalid. Now you have to be Christian. I beat you. Right. right? Like, like that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is 
I, I think that the, the, the tweet is once again, um, if to, to be to be a little provocative, it is indicative of how nobody is really an ex-evangelical, mm-hmm. because because every uh, not every non-theistic evangelical really can't help but just see evangelicals. If if evangelicals yeah. think they're the only Christians on planet Earth, so do ex-evangelicals. <laughs> like like yeah. they can't they can't help but break out of it and. Or they can't help. They have to really work to to break out of it. We have to really work to break out of it. Yeah. Um, because um, what we discover, you you know, like like we think about the black church sometimes, but like what we discover is, uh, you know, when we encounter um, edge lord uh, white ex evangelicals who who uh, repeat Richard Dawkins and think that they're really edgy. And, and talk about how bad the church is, you know, the, 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 they never have in mind uh, a, uh, an African Methodist Episcopal church. Exactly. You yeah. know, they never have in mind, um, uh, uh, you know, a group of Amish folks gathering together to two very different things, but like ultimately neither of them are evangelicals. You know, they yeah. don't really have that in mind. They have in mind, um, you know, the stuff I have in mind when I think about evangelicals, big uh, auditorium style amphitheaters with um, models playing music that sound a little bit like you two. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then somebody coming out with a, a little Hebrew tattoo on their forearm talking about, um, I don't know, Maybe let's let's leave uh, forearm tattoos and Hebrew tattoos out of the discussion. <laughs> that that hit a little too hard. It did. Have you seen? There's a video that's like a, a it's mocking uh, contemporary Christian worship services. There's a guy who comes out and is like, this is the first song. It's got a lot of energy and only has five words. And then goes to like the different parts of the service. And then like, I think the next person is a person who comes out and goes, I'm here to welcome you all. And I throw my arms out to show you how wide my welcome is and also to display my tattoo so you know I have a past. And yes. I, <laughs> I remember watching that and being like, oh, it, it hurts. It hurts in so many parts of my body. I'm only wearing long sleeves for the rest of my life. <laughs> You're like, oh, I have to be a nun. It's the <laughs> only it way. I've decided. <laughs> it's the only way forward. Yeah, I love that stuff. I, I love that stuff because it hurts me just enough. Like, like <laughs> I go, I remember those days. I remember those years. Like, I, I lived with a family. Like, I was never really, I never really believed in God, so, so keep that in mind. But I lived with a family of left-wing Democrats. And so, like, it didn't matter that we were evangelical adjacent. Eventually, we were going to look at it and go, what is going on? Yeah. You know, like, eventually, we were going to go, uh, I don't know about that. Like, let's, mm, no, that's not going to work. But like, I think the folks that have really stuck with it are, are folks who really buy into the cultural things that support it. So, you know, I sometimes hear about these left-wing evangelicals, and, and I actually don't know if there's such a thing, um, you know, that, that, that they kind of work with this sort of evangelical mindset of kind of ahist- ahistoricity and, and, 
and and you know the the kind of emotive and emotional you know things like that but i i don't know i don't know if that's all if we can properly call them evangelicals because yeah. i think i think evangelicals are at this point in american history a political base um yeah uh, and not not specifically a religious thing. Um, I think you're I think you're really right with that, and I think that that gets kind of back to the the like maybe what what kind of pings in our heads with with this tweet and with this whole discussion is that right now in the United States white evangelicalism is so synonymous with the religious right that there's not there's there's no like teasing apart what is being said in their churches versus what they are doing politically and and culturally like it's all one big ball together and in one way there's um <laughs> there's a very delightful wholeness to that like they're they are so integrated in their in their belief system and their politics and their their personal life it's just that that wholeness is so corrupt that it's like there's there's no undoing that without the whole thing falling apart and it would just be delightful to be able to see a uh, progressive or like leftist Christian be so integrated with their faith and personal life and politics in the way sure. that just right is right now. I agree. I agree. Well, will yeah. you sign us off? Yes. Uh, friends, this has been another episode of what the hell is a pastor. We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. That's my noise for Facebook. Uh, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, <laughs> the, the Witch of the West. <laughs> yeah, Wicked Witch of the West theme. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>